Welcome to the podcast. Today, we're talking about one of the major fault lines of Massachusetts energy policy. Should we build new pipeline infrastructure to bring cheap natural gas to the region, or should we reduce our reliance on fossil fuels and focus our efforts on solar, wind, and other renewables? The no pipeline forces have had the upper hand since August 2016 when the Supreme Judicial Court ruled that the Baker administration lacked the legal authority to require electric rate to payers to pay for a natural gas pipeline. Efforts to change the law to give the Baker administration that authority have gone nowhere, primarily because of opposition in the Senate. But the I- issue never seems to go away. It's constantly percolating in debates about energy policy. And recently, a number of business groups across the state have sought to elevate the discussion by launching the Coalition for Sustainable Energy, whose purpose is building support for a pipeline. My name is Bruce Moe of Commonwealth Magazine, and with me today are Elizabeth Turnbull Henry, the president of the Environmental League of Massachusetts, which has a number of business members, and Bob Rio, the senior vice president of government affairs at Associated Industries of Massachusetts, one of the business groups part of the coalition. Let's start with you, Bob. What's this coalition trying to do? Well, the coalition was really formed to address really an information gap between what ISO New England is saying about the status of our energy markets and really what the public policy people are hearing and the need to react to that. You know, on one hand, ISO New England is saying that there's a a big problem with our energy infrastructure in general, higher prices, potential brownouts, and we're trying to use that forum to bring the data from ISO New England and communicate it to the public and to decision makers to hopefully make some changes. For those that don't know the alphabet soup, ISO New England is the, the, the entity that operates the New England power yes, grid. They are charged with operating safely and reliably the New England power grid. And they have been, I think it's fair to say, raising concerns about uh, infrastructure capacity mm-hmm. Uh, for a number of years, although their tune has changed a little bit, they've sort of given up on the notion of a pipeline lately. They don't see that as politically realistic. But before you go on with that, let's go to you, Elizabeth. What's your take on on the your organization's take on uh, building a new natural gas pipeline into the region? Well, I think the Environmental League of Massachusetts feels like it isn't necessary, and actually that some of our most profound economic development opportunities actually come from building out some of the incredible renewable energy capacity that we have with solar, offshore wind, um, and then energy, and then some of the other technologies, energy storage, grid modernization, and so on. You may know that we spend $24 billion a year on energy as a commonwealth, and $18 billion of that leaves our state, goes to the Marcellus Shale, to Texas, to Saudi Arabia. And every kilowatt hour that we generate in the Commonwealth has this positive economic multiplier. Certainly I'll talk about the environmental benefits of, um, of renewable energy and of using the resources we have more wisely later, but we actually believe that there's a pretty strong economic development case for really doubling down on offshore wind and some of our renewable opportunities. But um, I just, maybe a good starting point is uh, natural gas has been a sort of boon to the region in a lot of ways because it's helped remove a lot of more polluting fossil fuel powered generators from from the scene. Coal is is going away, oil is down and and usually not used very much, oil generators. So, and gas has been responsible for that, Um, except at certain times of the year. We, and it's primarily this January, for example, Mm -hmm. we had a prolonged cold crunch and the power plants 
sort of run short of natural gas because everybody's using it to heat their homes. Mm -hmm. And as a result, prices skyrocket. And that's when I think the crunch that you're talking about, Bob, comes about. What do you, what's your, that seems to be the big issue, this period of nine, 10, maybe 15 days of winter. How do you deal with that? What's your, what's your yeah. take? I mean, I'm, I'm sympathetic to that, right? Those those moments really focus one's attention, right? But but they really are 10, 15 days a year, or in some cases, just hours in a day. Um, and it's worth taking the broader view. And Massachusetts has enjoyed a 35% reduction in, average, in the average wholesale price for energy between 2004 and 2017. And even December of 2017, which is the beginning of that cold snap, was still the second cheapest year since two, since 2003. And so it's true that there are these dramatic moments um, once, a, once a winter or you know, every couple of years um, where people say, oh my goodness. Um, and it's worth, and there's a lot that we should do to make sure that, we're, that we are insulated from those kinds of, insulated figuratively and literally from those kinds of right. cold snaps and price spikes. But um, to jump to the conclusion that, oh gosh, so it needs to be, this massive pipeline that is potentially a 40-year investment um, overlooks some of the cheaper and, um, I think, more exciting opportunities that we have locally. Bob, uh, during that cold snap mm-hmm. earlier this year, I think um, ISO New England said we burned 200,000 barrels of oil because the oil power-generating facilities had to come online mm-hmm. because the gas f- facilities couldn't keep up. Um, now, I assume you have an environmental argument, too, but give me your take on why we need the pipeline. Is it just for that p- period of the year, or is it Well, remember, it's, it's not what the coalition thinks or what AIM thinks. Um, all we're asking is that they have the authority, that the legislature or anybody else gives the authority or the ability for the utilities and others to propose a plan. Right now, that is prohibited because of what you, what you said earlier about the SJC case. So this would have to go through a process where uh, it would have to go to the DPU to make sure that this is viable and appropriate and environmentally secure and, frankly, in compliance with our Global Warming Solutions Act and also any other clean energy standards we have. The coalition is not looking to push those rules away. This is just to make up the little gap that exists between um, the clean energy standards we have uh, and what we need to really moderate the renewables as well as to moderate these high price spikes. I mean, we're sending hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars extra out of the state every year because of these price spikes that we have, hundreds of millions of dollars, which could have stayed here and which could have really contributed to economic development in the state. We have members in the western part of the state that can't get gas. We have power generators that can't get gas. And the alternatives are much more environmentally harmful than the natural gas. But in no way is the coalition looking to push away or push aside the tremendous gains we have made and will continue to make in renewable power. This does not do that. So is it a problem, though? Do you agree that it's a problem that just pops up temporarily every now and then? Well, it pops up when we have stress on the system. Um, We happen to have had a two-week stress on the system that we were dangerously close to running out of oil. Isonolingan reported that we were dangerously close on the last few days where some of the power plants did not have oil or didn't, was very, very low in their oil, and they needed to conserve it for the remainder of the winter. Remember, this was very early in the winter. 
It's not as if you just call up your local oil dealer and ask for, you know, a million gallons of oil. This takes time to, to restock. So when this hits early like that, um, it is far more painful, and the damages can be far more in environmental issues, like you say, burning more oil, as well as the potential for blackouts or brownouts when you simply run out of oil. Uh, we were lucky that we have not had another one of those extreme cold weather events since that time, but had we had one, the question is, would we have had enough oil to make up for that? And Elizabeth, um, environmental is in, the, in the, is in the title of your organization. Sure. So the, when during those peak cold periods, when we are shifting right now to oil and, and some, to some degree coal, I guess, a little bit left, that is harmful to the environment. And that's one of the arguments from the other side, that this ends up sort of, yeah, we might build a pipeline that would last for a long time, but these these spikes are using much more harmful types of fuel, and and it, and the the gas pipeline would actually reduce that. What do you think of that? Yeah, I mean, you're right that certainly oil and coal have substantially more particulate pollution and other um, other hazards. And you know, I, I think, like so many people, was really troubled to see all of that, you know, all of those fuels burned. What what I would say to that, though, is that um, we still have tremendous headroom in energy efficiency, in grid modernization, and in, in some of the systems changes. You can make the grid a lot more efficient, not just by changing light bulbs, but actually changing some of the substations. And um, you know, we have a we have a relatively old system compared to most parts of New England and excuse me, most parts of the U.S. And so um, there are so many more efficiencies that can be gained. Uh, to say nothing of um, you know, I referenced offshore wind a few a few minutes ago, but there's actually enough wind and water off of our coasts to power the entire state. I mean, we could be a net exporter of offshore wind a generation from now if we put our mind to it. And so I think there is this, we could be the beginning of an offshore wind pipeline rather than the end of a natural gas pipeline if we're, if we're motivated to do that. And is your concern that if we build a pipeline that will take some of the impetus for developing offshore wind, developing solar, it'll take some of the pressure off of that and that maybe that won't happen as quickly? Well, it's a good question. I, I guess that what I would say to that, which doesn't actually answer your question, Bruce, but what I would say is that there's tremendous downward pressure in solar and wind costs. And that's actually providing some real pressure on natural gas itself. I think I don't necessarily see the business case for a pipeline. Um, what I do see, however, is in the last eight years, Onshore wind costs nationally have fallen 67%. Utility-scale solar costs have fallen 86% in eight years. And we're not seeing a slowdown in those costs falling. Meanwhile, natural gas is kind of bottomed out. I mean, and, and in, some, in some parts of the country, it's, we're seeing that it's cost, renewable, new renewable generation is actually cheaper than natural gas infrastructure. So I, I, I look at these generators and they see the long game. You know, they're reluctant to enter into long-term natural gas contracts because they see where these renewable energy prices are going. And so I'm, I don't know, when push comes to shove, I wonder if, if there's actually the appetite to sign a long-term contract for a natural gas pipeline in Massachusetts. Well, that's a fair question because uh, efforts to sort of build a pipeline without any sort of governmental support, if you will, uh, have foundered so far. Uh, and the, it's, a, it's a way to finance it. Mm -hmm. um, and I think you were talking about the, the point of the coalition is to uh, 
raise this discussion? Yes. The point of the coalition is to really raise the discussion. Um, you know, the, the coalition is not saying go out and build it. The coalition is saying the law should be changed to allow us discussion around um, the ISO issue as well as the lack of infrastructure. It does not change any of the renewable requirements that we have currently now, nor does it change our goals on the Global Warming Solutions Act. This is to allow the Department of Public Utilities to look at something and say, is this a good idea or not? Right now, we can't do that. And it's avoiding one of the options we think that are important. It may go to the Department of Public Utilities, and the Department of Public Utilities may not agree with that. And that's fair. But right now, we can't even get to that point to have that public discussion. And we think that's, that's inhibiting one of the options we have. But the public discussion, I guess you're trying to create, is up on Beacon Hill, right? Well, uh, under the current rules, a law would have to be changed to allow this type of arrangement to occur. And let's just be clear, what the arrangement that you're talking about is what? The arrangement would be for electric repairs to subsidize or guarantee the gas pipeline for the power generators. Okay, so that would be a requirement that the legislature would have to change. Then a proposal would be made, which would then have to go through the Department of Public Utilities to make sure it meets all the other standards that the Department of Public Utilities would look at, you know, in the best interest of the ratepayers, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, as well as in allows us to continue compliance with all the other rules we currently have on the books, the Global Warming Solutions Act, the Clean Energy Standard, and things like that. And I think it's important to know that None of this really wants to stop the transmission of clean energy. Many of AIM's members are in the clean energy space, including the ones that are developing the offshore wind and the hydropower coming down from Canada. We support them 100%. It's going to take years to get those projects here. Legislating something or, or not allowing any options doesn't make this stuff occur any faster. Um, the build-outs for the offshore wind and the hydro are several years away, and full transition to renewable energy could be decades away just because of the way we have an upgraded an upgraded grid that's necessary. We have the actual building that's necessary. And that's not going to be easy to do. So there is a transition that is going to be needed to do this. Um, and that's where we believe that we're going to be most stressed out and we could have these environmental problems as well as potential brownouts. Now you probably know more about this than I do, but the the what is the reason because this is often people who have just come to this mm -hmm. discussion say, why can't the pipeline just companies say, we're going to build it ourselves? Mm -hmm. Or the, why don't the generators who need the gas say, we're going to commit to a long-term contract? Why, why don't yeah, the, well, the, the generators don't commit to long-term contracts because they don't know if they're going to need the extra gas. Um, you know, they don't know what the weather's going to be like. Remember, the generators are a p private company. They're not subsidized by – they're not utility-owned. They don't have an ability to – um, pass the cost along to their customers. So they're not going to enter into long-term contracts that may make running their power plant uneconomical. And if they don't use this gas, if they sign these contracts, then obviously they would be on the hook for the money and they, um, they wouldn't be able to pass that, pass that cost along. But uh, Elizabeth, maybe you're getting ready to ask this question. It seems like, but then the, the push is that ratepayers would sort of be on the hook for that risk, Well, right? the ratepayers are on the hook for the high prices. So, so one you way know, or the other. One way, the, I mean, the, to a generator, does it really matter if the prices are high or low if you have to buy their electricity, okay? So when you think about it, um, I'm not sure the generators are always in the worst position when prices go up higher because obviously they're, they're making money. They have to pay more for their gas, but they're also passing that along to the customers, okay? So this is an attempt 
to have the generators lower their price because we're going to be providing them with the gas they need, and therefore their prices would be lower. Uh, the ratepayer ultimately pays for everything. Uh, one That's way true. or another, and several hundred million dollars have left the ratepayers' pockets over the last few months because of this issue. Um, but yeah, it it seems to me, Elizabeth. Oh, did you want to say something about that? Go ahead. Well, it seems to me that uh, Bob was talking about it's going to be decades before we get to a whole renewable energy mm -hmm. environment, and. It takes a long time to build offshore wind and cl bring clean energy yeah. down. It also takes a while to build a pipeline. <laughs> right. um, so in my mind, the, the, the fight is over this period, as you say, when we, when we want to get to this sort of more clean energy future, how do we get there in the interim without having these price spikes? And some people sort of say, let's build a pipeline to deal with it. Mm -hmm. Others are saying, no, I think we can, you know, eke by with, other other measures mm -hmm. until we and and put pressure to do, is is that the real debate? Yeah, I mean people talk about natural gas as being a, a a transition fuel, a bridge fuel, and my concern is that building a pipeline just is sort of building the first half of the bridge, right? There's no you're not building an off ramp off off that bridge necessarily. Um, I mean, I it will take a couple of years. I mean, the hydro the um, the 1,200 megawatts from 83D. Sorry for the alphabet soup, but from the um, from the terrestrial renewable energy procurement that the legislature authorized in the Energy Diversity Act is likely to come online. What 2021? Um, and depends the, on which project. Depends they on which take. project exactly. Which 2021, 2022. <laughs> um, but that's not. I, I I would reckon that that is sooner than a pipeline would be built. Um, the offshore wind developers have nine years. Um, Technically, but they say they can build it in four to five. So we're looking at you know s similar timeline, maybe a couple of years delayed. Um, and meanwhile, I think we're seeing this just tremendous roar down that cost curve I mentioned, um, plus some pretty exciting. It's hard to people don't usually say exciting rule changes from ISO, but um, but there actually are some pretty interesting developments. The reliability study that Bob mentioned. Um, did say, look, you know, we're going to have a short, a short to midterm pinch point that we need to think about. But one of the, one of the interesting upshots from that study is of the 23 scenarios they modeled, every single scenario that was renewable energy heavy, except for one, showed the grid being more resilient and more reliable. So the takeaway is that renewables actually make us stronger. They diversify our, our energy mix and, um, and they lead to a more resilient, more reliable grid. There are a couple of other changes. Um, you know, Bob mentioned this, this, this gap with oil. We had to burn a lot of oil in the beginning of the season, and that leads to a pinch. ISO has a rule coming out um, or that will be live this summer for pay for, excuse me, pay for performance, which is this, this market-based system, economic incentives and penalties that um, drive generators to just have more supply on hand so that there's um, so that they are compensated for, uh, essentially compensated for reducing the, the risk of brownouts and blackouts. And it's, it'll be easier for energy storage to participate in markets going forward, which is also really exciting. So I think we're seeing some, a number of, you know, not necessarily sexy or sparkly changes behind the scenes, but ones that are making our, ones that are chipping away at this issue. And, um, and if we double down on the opportunities that we have, like I said, with efficiency and um, upgrading the system, solar, offshore wind, storage. Um, not only is it going to in increase the number of kilowatt hours that we have at our disposal, that's also where the lasting jobs and economic 
impacts are. We build a pipeline. We have a handful of welder, pipe fitter jobs for a year or two, and then they go away. But if we have a robust industry of weatherizers and solar installers and offshore wind turbine manufacturers, I mean, that's, that's, really, where the, that's really where we see the economic bump. That's what enhances our tax base. And um, so I, you know, Bob and I agree on a number of things, actually. Um, I think I came from the private sector, and I see that a strong economy is not something that we're entitled to, right? It's not something we should take for granted. Um, but that I, th I, I sincerely believe taking a really holistic, big picture view, um, pipelines are not in our economic best interest. Uh, Bob, the, the discussion hasn't really come up about prices, but um, the world Elizabeth is describing is sort of, uh, you know, lots of renewables and what have you. But there's a perception that, at least initially, there is a cost curve going in one direction, but the price is probably going to be higher initially than what it is to, you know, to produce electricity mm -hmm. with natural gas. Is price a big part of what you're talking about? Well, pr yeah, price is always a part of what we're talking about, okay? The, the, it, obviously, that, that has an enormous impact on people in Massachusetts, not only residential customers, but business customers. And it's not just us saying this stuff. When, when Iceland Lingham puts out a report or when these high prices are, are pushed out in the national press, at one point over the winter, um, Massachusetts had the highest natural gas prices in the world. That was widely reported in the press. And I got emails from Texas. I got emails from California, from, you know, various uh, people who track this thing saying, is, that, is this right? Is this Massachusetts has the highest prices in the world? And, you know, we may dismiss that a little bit and say it's only temporary. But the fact of the matter is people looking to locate in Massachusetts or people looking to expand in Massachusetts, they see those headlines. And when you see people out of state, Pennsylvania and other places writing those headlines for us, that can't be good for our, for our ability to attract businesses up here. So, you know, we're trying to get a reliable grid at a price and renewable as clean as possible. Um, offshore, we will know very, very soon what the prices of the offshore wind are and the hydro coming, coming down from Canada are, and we support them. Our members are actively engaged in in building those projects, and we supported the legislation which allowed the competitive solicitation for those bids. However, we will know in probably another month or two months how, how what impact those will have on the average ratepayer because we'll know what the kilowatt price approximately are. And I think that before we go too far, we need to understand what, as that price gets rolled through, what it means. And it doesn't mean you don't transition to renewables. It just means you need to... Um, let people know the, how much more this is going to cost because that could have a significant impact on where they set up their businesses and where they locate. So last area I wanted to talk about a little bit is um, you're trying to rekindle this debate on Beacon Hill. And uh, I think the Senate a year or two ago went on record. So it's not the current Senate, but they went on record unanimously not to allow um, the DPU to, to let electric rate payers pay for a gas pipeline. They called it the pipeline tax. Mm -hmm. Clever, clever name. Uh, how do you overcome that? I mean, it seems like the Senate is a very tough nut to crack. Mm -hmm. uh, well, I'm really troubled that, you know, they're putting laws in that they won't allow a debate at the DPU, which is really the agency that's charged with 
reviewing this as an independent third party. But at the same time, I mean, this year, the coalition really is looking to get the word out to talk about this, to let people understand what impact the ISO studies are having and what ISO New England is saying, because it's difficult to translate the ISO New England studies for sure. They, they tend to be very data-driven. So what we're trying to do is to simplify it and bring it to the average person and let them know what's, what's happening. Um, and that will be what this year really is. It's really a, a, uh, an information-building year. May I respond to the to the business point just briefly? Sure. Yeah. Um, I I hear Bob on the cost competitiveness and wanting to make sure that Massachusetts remains a, rem a, a world class place to seed and grow a business. One thing that may just interest you or interest listeners is that half of the Fortune 500 that are headquartered in Massachusetts actually have climate and energy goals that meet or exceed the state's own goal. And so on one hand, you have a state which is really proud of having some of the most ambitious climate and energy goals of any state in the nation. And yet the companies, many of which, the, many of the companies that we're the most proud to have here are actually way ahead of the state itself. Um, we have companies with 100% renewable energy by 2030 goals, companies that aspire to be climate neutral before 2050. And, um, and compare that to our own goal of being 80% have an 80% reduction by 2050. So I, I would just challenge this idea that all businesses are opposed, all businesses would be in support of a natural gas infrastructure. I mean, I know part of North Carolina's bid for Amazon included, um, included a renewable energy strategy because Amazon aspires to be 100% renewable energy powered. And so there's a, I think the business community is, is, is shifting and in many ways is ahead of the legislature that represents them on Beacon Hill, and um, and that's just something to keep in mind. Um, I think we're going to wrap it up there. Thanks for joining us today on the podcast, and join us next week at the same time. And also, uh, you can subscribe to us on SoundCloud and iTunes. Have a great week. <laughs>